Between the Covers is brought to you in part through the support of Propeller, a magazine of books, music, art, film, and life, and its publishing imprint, Propeller Books. Visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at PropellerMag. Before we begin today's program, I wanted to talk briefly about a past guest, Jesse Ball, and an offer he has made to listeners on behalf of the program. I suspect many of you know who Jesse Ball is since he was recently a guest on Between the Covers and yet is already the second most listened to episode of all time. If you don't know him, you should definitely check out our conversation and explore his work. Jesse Ball sent me copies of his 2006 book that he co-wrote with the Icelandic poet and novelist Thordis Bjornstadir called Vera and Linus to offer as gifts for people who support the Between the Covers Patreon campaign. Vera and Linus is a gorgeous object, full of illustrations, and made with care by an Icelandic small press. The story is composed of a mixture of what could be called prose poetry, flash fiction, and sketches, and Publishers Weekly says of Vera and Linus, the light touch and often archaic feel of the prose owes as much to Kafka as to classic fairy tales. Certainly, many readers will find this book unsettling, but most will also find it hard not to remember a time when the world was filled with this kind of fearful mystery and wonder. Vera and Linus is out of print. The Icelandic publisher no longer exists, so this is a rare memento. For people who are not already supporters of the program, if you begin ongoing support of the show at $2 an episode through Patreon, that is patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash between the covers, you can receive a copy of Vera and Linus. If you're already a supporter, either via PayPal or Patreon, you likewise can get a copy by increasing your support by $1 an episode, or if you're a PayPal supporter, beginning a Patreon support at $1 an episode. Again, this is at patreon.com slash between the covers. Enjoy today's program. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is writer, editor, teacher, and publisher Jeff Vandermeer. Vandermeer is perhaps best known for his contributions to the literary genre known as the New Weird. He is the author of many novels and collections, including City of Saints and Mad Men, Finch, The Book of Lost Places, and the co-authored Bestiary, The Kosher Guide to Imaginary Animals, among many others. Vandermeer's writing has won three World Fantasy Awards, a Nebula, a Locus Award, 
a British Fantasy Award, and the British Science Fiction Association Award. He's also the editor of many significant anthologies in the field, many of which are co-edited with his wife, the Hugo Award-winning editor Anne Vandermeer. His anthologies include The Best American Fantasy, The Big Book of Science Fiction, The Weird, A Compendium of Strange and Dark Stories, Sisters of the Revolution, a feminist speculative fiction anthology, and the cult classic The Thackeray T. Lambshead Pocket Guide to Eccentric and Discredited Diseases, among many others. On top of all of this, he's also the author of the landmark writing guide, Wonder Book, the illustrated guide to creating imaginative fiction. You would think with all of this, his writings, and the significant anthologies and guides he has contributed to the field, that Jeff Vandermeer would be a long-standing household name. But it wasn't until 2014, with his New York Times best-selling Southern Reach trilogy, three books, Annihilation, Authority, and Acceptance, released in quick succession by FSG, all within one year, that Vandermeer leaped into the cultural consciousness at large. Yes, Annihilation won the Shirley Jackson and Nebula Awards, but it also made over 30 year-end best-of lists, was optioned by Alex Garland, the director of Ex Machina, to be made into a film starring Natalie Portman, and prompted The New Yorker to dub Vandermeer the Weird Thoreau. Jeff Weird Thoreau Vandermeer is here today on Between the Covers to talk about his latest, much-anticipated novel, also from FSG, also optioned for film, entitled Born. Colson Whitehead calls Born a thorough marvel, a book that continues Vandermeer's investigation into the malevolent grace of the world. The New York Times says this coming-of-age story signals that ecofiction has come of age as well, wilder, more reckless, and more breathtaking than previously thought, a wager and a promise that what emerges from the 21st century will be as good as anything from the 20th or the 19th. The Los Angeles Times calls Bourne the most beautifully written and believable post-apocalyptic tale in recent memory. Kirkus, in its starred review, says Vandermeer's deep talent for world-building takes him into realms more reminiscent of Cormac McCarthy's The Road than of The Shire. And Booklist, in its starred review, says Vandermeer marries Bildungsroman, domestic drama, love story, and survival thriller into one compelling, intelligent story centered not around the gee whiz novelty of a flying bear, but around complex, vulnerable characters struggling with what it means to be a person. Welcome to Between the Covers, Jeff Vandermeer. Thanks for having me. And I, I do need to say one thing, which is that uh, Thoreau was the weird Thoreau, so Thoreau it's was kind the of weird hard Thoreau. to yeah, yes. <laughs> top that. Yeah, he was pretty weird himself. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so what's interesting when I assembled these comments that mm -hmm. we just read right. is how many ways the book is described. So mm -hmm. apocalyptic yes. tale, coming of age story, domestic mm -hmm. drama, survival thriller, mm -hmm. eco-fiction. Mm -hmm. And the New Yorker even called it a trans-species rumination on the theme of parenting, mm -hmm. um, all of which seems fitting because the main... the title character, Born itself, is a shape-shifting, hard-to-describe creature. Mm -hmm. But it made me curious, if you were having to give your elevator pitch, what is Born mm -hmm. about? Um, could, you, yeah. could you tell us um, maybe what your initial description would be and, and maybe orient us to how the book opens? Right. Well, um, I described it early on uh, as 
Godzilla versus, versus Mothra in the background while a Chekhov play goes on in the round in the foreground. And what I really wanted to do is I wanted to wed the epic and the personal in a way that I don't think is that common. Um, I also wanted to make sure in the third act that, you know, because I have these kind of epic elements, a giant flying bear that terrorizes this ruined city of the future, for example, that it didn't descend to kind of, into kind of like a Hollywood CGI superhero movie in the third act, you know, um, that I kept my eye on the personal. And the personal is Rachel's relationship with Bourne, this bit of abandoned biotech that she actually finds entangled on the flank of the giant bear while it's sleeping. Um, and so obviously with those kinds of elements, I'm dealing with science fiction, but I'm also kind Kind of dealing with fantasy in that I thought it'd be interesting to have this post-apocalyptic situation where there are elements that read like fantasy just because Rachel, the narrator, doesn't, you know, the scavenger in the city doesn't really, um, she's not a creator of this stuff. So just like we don't know how our smartphones work really or, or how to fix a car, it would be kind of that kind of a situation. And, and things just kind of escalate from there because Bourne grows. Bourne is a made creature, potentially made by this this company on the edge of town that's been sucking resources out of the city. Uh, and as he grows and begins to speak, uh, you know, he begins to change kind of the future of, of the city. And that's, that is, you, you speak to something that um, I think is really remarkable about the book that people are picking up on is that even though we have this lethal flying mm -hmm. bear, we have this shape-shifting Mm -hmm. uh, piece of biotech that has consciousness. We have hordes of bioengineered children fighting bear proxies. Oh, and bear proxies that are both venomous and breathe fire at one point. <laughs> <laughs> and yet people are really talking about this mm -hmm. this emotional connection, this foregrounded, mm -hmm. um, yeah. these, these questions of mm -hmm. what it means to be a person, what it means to raise mm -hmm. a, a creature um, about love, about betrayal. Mm -hmm. it, well, I really wanted to write a novel this time because the Southern Reach is really, in addition to everything else it's about, is about care, people who cannot connect, who are very isolated. And uh, that was fine for that series. But but here I wanted to write about people who are trying to connect. And by people, I mean that term in quotes, you know, uh, because Bourne is not a person. But is he a person? What, what defines a person? Is it the shape that you take? Uh, is it how you behave? Is it what you say? Um, and so some of those conversations between uh, him and Rachel, especially as he's kind of growing up as a child, uh, are, are more than one thing. Sometimes it's born trying to tell Rachel, I'm, I'm really not like you, you know, and, and Rachel not picking up on it because she's seeing this thing as, as a child. Hmm. Um, and so that is the heart of the, of the story. It's about people trying to be their better selves in very difficult situations, which is something you see in the real world all the time. Right. Well, you mentioned this difference between orientation between mm -hmm. Bourne and the Southern Reach trilogy, mm -hmm. and it feels like in one respect they're dealing with similar issues, mm -hmm. mainly human relations to non-humans. Mm -hmm. In one case, whether it's animals, plants, and fungi, but in this case with biotech, with a consciousness, but they seem to be approaching things in opposite ways. Um, Southern Reach has the area X, a pristine area, and mm -hmm. Bourne is in a sea of contamination. And... Um, the characters in Southern Reach don't have names, mm -hmm. whereas in Born, naming seems to be part of the process. Like both your mm -hmm. the naming that you're giving to mm -hmm. things, but also Rachel's naming mm -hmm. seems important. The naming of Born, um, but also the personal narratives mm -hmm. seem more foregrounded in, in the book. But while Southern Reach is directly grappling with climate change, it feels like Born is sort of obliquely addressing climate change. And, and one of the ways is the fact that Rachel is a climate change refugee. And I was hoping you could 
talk a little bit about that and how that informs the book. Right. Well, um, uh, I think that Annihilation Southern Reach kind of bring you up to the edge of apocalypse in a way. Um, and there's no way to really show what happens after the third book because it would just be so alien that it would be impossible to describe except in the most surreal terms. And also in Annihilation, those books, it's kind of like everything's peering out of the vegetation. There's a very dense landscape that's very, very intentional. And in this book, I wanted the, the landscape's kind of in the backdrop, and it's the people and the animals that, that, that have names, that have, that, that, that have kind of uh, more agency. And uh, it's, uh, it's interesting to me that for those uh, first books to work, for Annihilation to work, I had to not have the names. Every time I had the names in there, um, I didn't. Know, I knew less about the characters here. I needed the names, but I didn't need names for other things. Like there's there's something called just the company. The city's never named. For some reason, I needed those elements to 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 be more distant in that way, and that just shows what I'm trying to foreground. Um, and and it is a situation where Born is post-apocalyptic. It's it's kind of postulating a situation where we've run our course with fossil fuels, you know, obviously still in more fantastical than science fictional uh, kind of uh, directive, but kind of showing what happens after apocalypse. How do you pick up the pieces if, if you have a chance, if, if, if we still kind of vaguely survive the cusp of, of climate change and what that might be like? And, and even the giant bear, yes, he's very literal. Everything in my books that are monster-wise has to be literal, but, um, but also figuratively, you know, I think for people who are displaced, for people who have their whole lives ruined in a day, it is like something inexplicable appeared on the horizon. So the figurative aspect of the bear being that an inexplicable thing. Yeah, whether it's climate change or anything else, war or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was heartened to see a climate change refugee because I, I think about the refugee crisis in mm -hmm. Syria and how at the very beginning people were talking about how it began as a climate change mm -hmm. uh issue internally mm -hmm. that all these people right. were leaving the rural part of Syria for the cities yeah. for years before we'd noticed. Before, and then yeah. they collapsed the yeah. infrastructure in the cities and then they were yeah. fleeing Syria. Right. But it feels like a real failure of the media now that mm -hmm. it's not in the foreground of anyone's minds mm -hmm. that a lot of this refugee crisis is at least partly uh, and significantly a climate change crisis. And, and one thing about Bourne, in as much as it indirectly kind of references some of this stuff, um, I wanted everyone in the city to be a refugee because I think that even people who are sympathetic to refugees are very othering about them. They're always somebody else in some other place that we can help. They're not us. And in fact, they are us. They're exactly like us. And so, you know, there's obviously a lot of racist stuff about refugees, but then there's also what I would call kind of a liberal sympathy or neoliberal sympathy that, that I find a little bit off as well. Um, and so that's why everyone in Bourne is from somewhere else. They're all refugees because mm -hmm. we, we all are, are going to be affected by this. Uh, and then also, you know, when you, when I write about these kinds of things, I, I could never write directly about them. Um, I think that that's, that's presumptuous. Um, mm. but you can still touch on these themes uh, if you do it in the right way with the right distance. You wrote this great article on the Atlantic mm. about the things that influenced the writing of Annihilation a book that you wrote in five weeks, which I'm sure will <laughs> create a lot of pain for the writers listening to this show. Um, you talked about the ways the Gulf oil spill mm -hmm. and your dental surgery um, that you were undergoing at the time affected the writing, mm -hmm. but also weird things that were happening in reality that felt like they were inviting themselves into the narrative, mm -hmm. the gas fumes in your car, the fungal explosion in the trunk yeah. of your car, yeah. 
and even you um, doing a simulated break-in of your own house yes. <laughs> in order to sort of get an idea of what that would feel like for when yes. you were writing Annihilation. Yeah. So I was curious if there were any um, analogs in the writing of Born. Were there things that um, became obsessions or that were out in the world that were uh, yeah. contaminating in, yeah. in a beneficial way the, the writing of Born? Well, I think that, that for one thing, the, the Annihilation books are, are very different breed and there's a lot of paranoia in there that's not in in these books just because of who the narrators are um i do remember being in my car and being in the the kind of the character of control for authority and seeing a squashed mosquito on the inside of my windshield and i wasn't sure if i was channeling control or my own paranoia at that point being in the middle of it thinking who squashed a mosquito in my car who's been in my car and then use that in a scene so so there was a lot of that and i think it's very useful in general for creative writing for for writers to think about the tactile nature of what they're doing and how lived-in experience is very important to that of, of some kind. I mean, I got in a lot of trouble uh, doing this morning news uh, literary tournament where I said one book could have really benefited if the guy had actually fallen down a well and known what that was like or <laughs> lived in a well for a bit because he had a scene in a well that didn't convince me at all. And I got yeah. a lot of crap. That, oh, writers should just do it out of their imagination. But you find out things when you do that that you wouldn't know otherwise. For Bourne, it was more an accumulation of um, detail about decayed urban landscapes that when I was on book tours and things, I would go to places and I would like pick up tactile detail. Um, but then also, you know, I grew up in the South Pacific and I've been thinking for a long time of how can I write about that even indirectly? Um, because again, even if you're there for four or five years, you're still, you're not a tourist, but you're not, you're not someone who's part of the landscape. You see, I think you have to be very cautious about how you write about it. Um, but here, you know, with, with Rachel's background coming from an island nation, I was able to access some of my memories of growing up in, in Fiji and uh, put them to use. Uh, I was once lost on a reef, oddly enough, at night. Uh, my parents' flashlight went out, we got separated, and I was oriented by this giant crown of thorns glowing starfish, finally, which mm. is the only way I knew sea from shore. Mm. And that image uh, keeps recurring in my fiction. Um, you know, is, is kind of there just in the, the initial impulse of, of Rachel reaching out to grasp this, this glowing thing that reminds her of her childhood growing up on an island because it looks a little like a sea anemone. Um, so some of those moments are in there. There's a lot of sea imagery that I didn't even realize was in Bourne until it was pointed out in the New York Times Review. And then I realized, oh, that makes a lot of sense because Rachel is coloring the whole landscape with her past right. um, and how she describes it, you know. And But that hadn't even occurred to me. So there's some sub subconscious stuff going on there as well. Huh. In case you just tuned in, we're talking to author Jeff Vandermeer about his latest book, Bourne. Well, in the Southern Reach trilogy, you you were inspired by uh, Northern Florida wildlife refuge. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I read that with Bourne, you were inspired partly by a Tallahassee wastewater treatment plant. So <laughs> can, can you talk a little bit about the role that plays as place that, yeah. or as inspiration? It's, it, it's, it's a, I mean, obviously it's a facility that's doing a job that's, that's very useful, but at the same time, it's very strange because it's a, a prime birding place. The birds go to the holding ponds there and there's a lot of nutrients and whatnot that they can pick up on. And so sometimes th there was even a snowy owl there once that people came from miles around to see because it was such an unusual bird to have there. Um, and I also, there's one scene, very little tiny scene that I, is so delicate, I think, in Bourne where 
Rachel sees a mallard or a duck with a broken wing. And it's just kind of a, not a really a throwaway thing, but I think it's symbolic of something. And I did, in fact, see that out at the, at the wastewater treatment plant, and it was so poignant because mallards mate for life. So the one mallard had a broken wing. It probably wasn't going to survive, but its mate was just sticking with it. It wasn't going to fly off, and, and that really stuck with me. Yeah. Um, but it's also kind of po- apocalyptic because for some reason at the wastewater treatment plant, there are these gouts of flame rising above the domes and things. And it just got me to thinking about life that's in places you don't expect, and, and that's one explore, thing I really wanted to explore because in addition to pristine wilderness, we really need to think about the biosphere in urban spaces and how we can preserve it for our own well-being as well. And, and is the pond of discarded biotech that emerges out of this pond, is that coming from the wastewater treatment plant also? Well, well that's actually an interesting thing because part, part of it probably is, but uh, just like it, it's also something that shows up in annihilation. When I, when I was growing up in Gainesville, when we came back from Fiji when I was around 9 or 10, I lived in Gainesville, Florida, and we rented a house with a with an abandoned swimming pool in the back that was full of fish and frogs and, you know, herons came to it. And I kind of tended it like a like an amateur biologist. And it showed up in annihilation in bi- the biologist's background as something in her past. Uh, and now it's shown up as Wick's biotech pool, you know, Rachel's partner who, who takes discarded biotech and kind of reforms it into his own creations. Um, so things like that, you know, they're, 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 they're images that are from are autobiographical that have some power to me and that I then try to kind of like pick through and say, what does this actually mean? Um, so sometimes you'll see these things recur in novels because I'm still trying to pick through what it means to me. Yeah. Well, one of the themes in Born, as we've mentioned before, is is what is a person? What mm-hmm. bestows personhood on someone mm-hmm. or something? But also goes into the nature of consciousness and whether we as humans are willing mm-hmm. to concede consciousness to non-human others, right. whether biotech or otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, in the case of Bourne, we're talking of biotech that has a consciousness. Um, but this question of whether we'll, we'll see that in others is seems to go through a lot of your work. Mm-hmm. You said before that this is an area that seems to be a big blind spot in fiction when looking at, say, animals, mm-hmm. that writers do a ton of research to make a world believable. Mm-hmm. Uh, to make the science in the story solid, mm-hmm. but that when it comes to animal behavior, for instance, they rely on science that's 30 years old mm-hmm. and outdated and yeah. even proven wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's a, like you were saying about looking at life in urban spaces, it's an, perhaps a issue of, of what we're willing to see and look right. at and pay yeah. attention to. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about some of the science um, that particularly fascinates you about animal, plant, or Mm -hmm. fungi Mm -hmm. uh, behavior Mm -hmm. that um, breaks down this sense of like a human-centric consciousness Mm -hmm. world. Well, I mean, the thing is that we swim in a sea of propaganda about animals. You know, part of it comes from folk tales that were useful at a particular time, but kind of typify things. Like, for example, our owls are probably the dumbest birds out there, and yet, of course, we have this thing of them as being wise owls, right? So, so already you can see in very maybe not harmful ways, but how things are actually portrayed as as not accurate. We have this thing where if animals are cute, we're more likely to want to save them. Um, we perpetuate mythology about sharks, for example, some of which are very social animals, are much more intelligent than we give them credit for. But we we do, I think, have to uh, get beyond this idea of trying to find human-like intelligence in other animals because their intelligence is very different. It is almost like encountering an alien intelligent species. You know, a dolphin lives in the water. A dolphin communicates in ways that we can't even 
inhabit in any possible way. Just the fact that it lives in water and its skin is sensitive to water in a way that ours isn't and communicates in, in a different way um, is something that is informing media theory now about nature um, and different ways to communicate. So, so the idea that, that, um, that we with our paltry five senses can somehow be the experts on what constitutes intelligence is is a little disturbing. Uh, octopuses are, are incredibly intelligent, um, and 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 I, I also kind of bridle at the idea that we have to assign importance to an animal based on whether we think it's intelligent or not. Um, personally, I don't like killing any animal if I can avoid it, and 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 I think that we should just value life in general. But but it also speaks to how we treat habitats, right? Because animals are the, the, the ambassadors of these habitats, and they're the things we most think of when we think of like wilderness. And so when we devalue them, um, it allows us to devalue habitats more, even though we are also dependent on those same habitats. So it's our, our fate and animals are linked. And the more that we try to, to de-link ourselves from that, uh, the more trouble we get into. Um, and, and it's just that simple. It, these things are linked. Hmm. Well, when you mention um, getting away from looking for a human-type mm -hmm. intelligence, you did have this really interesting conversation with Charlotte Wyatt, at, the fiction editor at Gulf Coast, mm -hmm. where she brought up oh, anth yeah. anthropomorphism. Yes. And you echo something that um, when I, in one of my conversations mm -hmm. with Ursula K. Le Guin, she talked about this as well, that a scientist's reluctance to anthropomorphize mm -hmm instead of leading to accurate description and objectivity, mm -hmm. has led us to presume that they have no intention and they have no right. emotion behind mm -hmm. their actions. And I was hoping you could maybe unpack that a little because um, Le Guin talks about the need for more subjectivity in mm -hmm. science, essentially, mm -hmm. that we should allow our relational aspect mm -hmm. with animals mm -hmm. to, to inform, or even our own emotions mm -hmm. around mm -hmm. being in relationship with animals mm -hmm. to, to inform um, our interaction with them. So um, could you talk a little bit about your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, there's all kinds of things to unpack here because um, science has at various times also been very sexist and racist. Um, you also have situations where human beings have been displayed in zoos. And so you have to be very careful about the anthropomorphizing issue because it's also fraught with all these other issues. Um, but, you know, just looking at, for example, great apes, I was talking to Karen Joy Fowler, uh, whose last novel dealt with, with great apes and research on them and was very actually factually accurate about that for the longest time, even with apes, the fact that they weren't willing to ascribe intentionality to certain actions that were actually very close to human actions um, meant that they, they went along with the te the, these testings and these terrible conditions for, for creatures that were not that far removed from us um, and allowed them to rationalize basically bad behavior. Um, so, so just from you know, the point of view of how you treat animals, it's very important. But then... Um, but but then then it's an act of it's an act of, of of empathy and imagination to at least try to get behind be beyond the human gaze to kind of get a sense of just how wondrous and amazing the world we live in is with these other life forms, um, even certain kinds of ants and bees, things we think of as very very uh, low on the chain of of sentience, seem to have, uh, according to latest animal behavior research, more free will and more intentionality, not, not a human level, but than we, than we imagined, that, and that their brains are more complex. Like bird brains, we just discovered, have twice as many neurons or synapses, something like that, than we thought. So even though they're smaller, they actually have more capacity. Um, and so 
what this what this leads me to believe is that we we don't know enough biology yet. Even we to, to just have discovered that is is crazy. Um, so when we're taking action about the environment, about animals, we're doing it even in the current situation on very limited information and doing a lot of self harm as a result. In addition to the intrinsic ethical question of being good stewards of the world around us. So. I think it might have been the New York Times article. I'm, I'm not an, entirely sure, but they point out that a lot of times when we have encounters with alien creatures in science fiction, mm. traditionally they have a humanoid shape, yeah. that there's ways in which we yeah. see ourselves in these alien creatures, yeah. and that with Born, you're really um, making that impossible yeah. uh, intentionally, that Born, the creature, not only usually appears in very non-human shapes, but is always changing shape. So and has many senses that we mm -hmm. could never recognize as ones that we are able to perceive through. I think that um, in my fiction, it's been very important to have that physicality and to not have these animals throughout my entire career be stand-ins for human situations. And one reason is I want to push back against. There has been a tradition in science fiction, sometimes useful, sometimes not, where the aliens are always stand-ins for something on Earth. Right. And that can be very problematic. You've led to a lot of situations that are basically like frontier settler, uh, Native American situations, for example, in space uh, in very problematic ways, not examining what that means. Um, so I try to be very, um, very specific and precise and to try to imagine non-human uh, life in, in hopefully unique ways. And it's also kind of, um, I was really, really felt vindicated by the New York Times review for this reason. I've always felt like because of this issue, I've been kind of like passing through different genres and being claimed by different genres, but, but that I've been doing something a little different. Um, and so it was very vindicating to see them focus on that and, and acknowledge what I've been trying to do. Mm. Well, maybe it's like now's a good time to, for people to hear a little bit mm. of the press from the book. Yeah. Um, this this scene, Rachel uh, in her sanctuary, uh, lo not long after she finds Bourne, uh, she gets attacked, and while she's recovering by 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 people out in the city, and while she's recovering, uh, she learns that Bourne can talk, and Bourne seems to be kind of learning at an exponential rate, and this scene is, I think, uh, in some ways, kind of cute, um, but but always in these scenes that are cute, you know, there's this idea that Bourne is a is a made creature and that born is ultimately also kind of just passing through and may seem human at times but but may not be very human at all so born made me happy but happiness never made anyone less stupid during my recovery i had such trouble remembering what waited for me outside as if i had to learn it all over again despite having been taught so many lessons all kinds of dangerous ideas entered my head while groggy it was as if the little foxes and other animals out in the desert ran in circles around my mind, barking and kicking up dust, stopping only to stare at me from afar. I kept fantasizing that I lived in a real apartment in one of the stable sanctuaries of my past. Everything would be fine. I just had the flu or a cold and was out sick until I got better. And when I was better, what would I do? When I was better, I would go back to university and to some part-time job. I would complete my studies so I could become a writer because the ruined city was just a bad dream and my life as a scavenger was a bad dream. And soon I would wake up and the visions of almost drowning, of losing my parents would prove to be an illusion too. But minds find ways to protect themselves, build fortifications, and some of those walls become traps. 
even as I started to walk around my rooms with Bourne, even as I ventured out into the corridors. It was so sad a fantasy that I brushed by without recognition the revenants that told me it was a lie. Yet those weeks also contained some of my best memories because of Bourne. Wick was gone a lot, spying on his rivals, which left Bourne and me ever more time to explore. He'd gotten tired of being cooped up in the apartment. On days when I knew Wick would be out for hours, I'd take Bourne into the hallways, prickly with the fear of discovery and stiff from my slow healing wounds. It was all a construct by then, this game of not telling Wick that Bourne could talk. He had to know. But because I never admitted it and Wick never brought it up, Bourne became an open secret that existed between us like a monster all its own. It made me reckless as if I wanted Wick to confront me, that somehow our relationship would be a lie if Wick didn't confront me. Ignoring the strain on my body, Bourne and I would race down dim-lit corridors, Bourne afraid of colliding, congealing with the wall, and tripping over his own pseudopods, wailing as he laughed, You're going too fast, or why is this fun? Which just made me laugh, too. When you don't have to run, and you have the chance to run for the hell of it, it becomes a strange luxury. Then we'd collapse at the end of the hall, and Bourne, in addition to his usual observation that he was hungry and needed a snack, would ask some of his questions. He never stopped asking them, as if he was really ravenous for the answers. This dust is so dry. Why is dust so dry? Doesn't it need some wet for balance? Then it's mud. What's mud? Wet dirt. I haven't seen mud yet. No, you haven't. Not yet. I would show Bourne a photo of a weasel in an old encyclopedia, and he'd point with an extended tentacle and say, Oh, long mouse. Which brought me quickly to the idea of teaching Bourne to read, except he picked that up on his own. When we played hide-and-seek, I'd sometimes find him hunched up on the edge of a midden of discarded books, two tentacles extending out from his sides to hold a book, and a single tentacle tipped with light curling down from the top of his head. He would study any number of topics and had no real preferences, his many eyes enthusiastically moving back and forth as he read the pages at a steady clip. I don't believe he needed light or eyes to read, but I know he liked to mimic what he saw me doing. Perhaps he even thought it was polite to seem to need light, to seem to need eyes. But the truth is, I don't really know what he thought or how he thought it, because most of the time, I just had his questions. We've been listening to Jeff Vandermeer read from his latest book from FSG, Born. So for the Southern Reach trilogy, you were in ongoing conversations with some scientists, mm -hmm. um, both to see if they could help problem solve certain mm -hmm. theoretical yes. situations, <laughs> but also to see if the science that you had yeah. put on the page held up. Yeah. Was there a process of engagement with uh, scientists with Bourne? And if so, what type of scientists were they? Um, well, um First of all, with the Annihilation series, I basically found anything's possible in physics. So after a while, these conversations became ridiculous. It was like, yeah, that could happen. Sure, why not? <laughs> um, with with Bourne, I think because it was more fantastical and because I'd already done a lot of research, and then also because there's this issue of... I quite frankly get impatient when there's a lot of explanation in a future novel from a novelist about something related to, say, biotech or anything like that, because I feel like that's really the author giving a tell that it's not truly integrated with the future. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to avoid having those long-ass descriptions, and I wanted, because it's more fantastical, to just be and just happen and have Rachel at the street level just encounter these things and have a kind of loose, surreal logic to how things operate. Um, so I didn't do as much consultation this time. I just know that, you know, for example, uh, Gwyn Lim, who's a, a plant 
uh, biologist from Cornell, uh, studying at Cornell, I was able to pass her the novel, and she gave it the thumbs up. She had no problem with it. Um, she understood also that it was coming in part from like anime and manga influences and things like that. Um, so there is this combination where the threshold of of what you need to do in a, in a novel that's not as not going for realism as much. You know, how accurate do you have to be? You just have to get like the spirit of something on there. And weirdly, it sounds like you're saying that the less you explain in in certain ways will make it feel more realistic. Yes. One one rule I, I find, and I think I have this in Wonder Book, too, is that, and I learned this actually from Stepan Chapman, who unfortunately passed away a couple years ago. Uh, his book, The Troika, is amazing on this, on this issue and also deals with biotech in some ways, um, is that the more you explain, the less the reader usually believes it, because it is a tell. It, it's, it's saying, I'm not confident in what I have on the page. And so sometimes it's better to dispense with the most outrageous ideas in a sentence and go on or find the spot where it really makes sense in terms of the plot and characters to go into more detail. Mm. Well, you have this sort of fundamental epistemological question in mm -hmm. the book, which is a question of scientific relevancy, mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. And it's the difference between the way Rachel and her partner Wick mm -hmm. want to understand Bourne. So essentially, mm -hmm. Wick is saying the only way we can understand Bourne mm -hmm. is to take Bourne apart and mm -hmm. examine mm -hmm. its pieces. And Rachel is basically arguing that the only way to understand born is to be in relationship with the whole living mm -hmm. creature that is born, mm -hmm. observation and yes. possibly fellowship. Yeah. Um, and this seems to mimic a divide in science. If we yeah. think about experimental or laboratory science versus Dar Darwinian mm -hmm. science, which was observational and empirical. But you place this question within a post-apocalyptic mm -hmm. world of toxicity and scarcity. And it made me wonder if you were calling for a paradigm shift in science as part of us grappling with this uh, apocalypse that I think a lot of us can see on the horizon now. I think it's um, actually reflecting what's going on in the sciences now, which uh, people realize that specialization has become a trap. Uh, at the very least, they need to be in more contact with more different kinds of scientists, no matter what field you're in. You see this also as a trap because you see um, sometimes it's engineers, but you see engineers who are climate change deniers, and they're scientists, right? So in theory, they should be behind it, but it be, their specialization is somehow sometimes, and I'm not making a generalization, a generalization about engineers, I'm just saying that this, this can happen. Um, you know, back in the 1800s, um, you would have scientists who would even deliver their findings in the form of poetry which speaks also to like how scientists are able to communicate their findings to the general public. So, so I think that scientists are finding this. I know my dad, who researches Robert Vandermeer, who's, who's, who researches fire ants, found this too, because just by chance he happened to be talking to someone who deals with poison frogs, and there's an enzyme in poison frogs that's really important to his research. He would never would have been able to get samples or find out about. Um, just a small example. Um, and so that's really what's reflected there. I would also say that on another kind of meta, meta level, it's the difference between English criticism and learning creative writing, mm. because I really think that those two things need to be totally separate. One is a dissection and analysis. The other is learning how an ecosystem works, more or less. Um, so yeah, I, th I think it's a very important situation. It's why I get invited to science conferences sometimes, because they're looking to be as cross-interdisciplinary as possible, because they think the answers lie pretty much everywhere. Well, to take that further, you mentioned your, your dad, who, and you come from a family of scientists. Mm -hmm. um, and yet you've said before that you've become very jaded about the rationality of science. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if all the hordes of escaped or discarded uh, biotech <laughs> creatures that mm -hmm. populate and also terrorize this world, 
is a dramatization of the unforeseen consequences that seem to always happen in science when it's mm -hmm. mixed, particularly when it's mixed with capitalism. Right. Um, that science seems to disregard mm -hmm. until it's yeah. a retrospective yeah. um, look. So I was wondering if you could talk about science and rationality, why you are jaded about it, and how that sort of enters into the world of Born, if it does. Well, I think that, uh, for one thing, you know, I, I really, one reason I have hope is because of scientists and because I've had the amazing opportunity to talk to a lot of scientists at a lot of events and whatnot. So it's in that context that, again, you know, for example, just little things, you know, like like the whole process of fertilization of an egg by a sperm was for the longest time this active sperm and this passive egg. And it's very much gender oriented because that's not actually what happens. It's a much more complex process with the egg being much more active. But we get into these, there's first of all that, which is like scientists need to examine what their foundational assumptions are when they're doing research. Um, another great one is that turns out white mice are much more affected by the sweat of male human beings than by women. So there may be studies that are off simply because they were male researchers interacting with these mice. But on top of that, you then also uh, have just the, like you talked about, the overlay of the market. One reason we're not as far on biomimicry is not because things aren't possible, even perhaps, you know, wireless or wire networks that are actually biological in nature as opposed to wires. Um, it's not because of a lack of imagination. It's a lack of funding because it's not seen as something that you can market. And part of our problem is we are continually wanting to push to take things to market in a capitalist situation that are not ready ethically to be there, right? Like we just saw uh, somebody graft the head of a mouse to another mouse, and I saw a torture experiment, and everyone else was like, great, soon we'll be grafting human heads and be able to transplant and be immortal, right? But there's an ethical step that's being a question that's not being asked because we're always being asked to go to market. And I saw with my dad, you know, he does great research on the side when he was doing um, other research um, for companies and stuff, there would always be this push, you know, and there's always also the human dynamic of being in a lab, you know, doing papers with other people, being dependent on scientific journals. And so all of those processes are potentially benign, but they do have to be examined and you have to be on your toes thinking about the implications of, of, of what can happen out of that in a negative way. Yeah. So. Well, I want to circle back to uh, science and also believability in mm -hmm. stories. You had this conversation at MIT mm -hmm. um, on the Southern Reach tour, and you talked about things that annoy you that are totally unrealistic <laughs> in books. And you mentioned earlier, like, the person falling down a well, and it didn't yeah. seem like they were imagining it in a way that felt at all believable. And this tell that you're talking about, about over-explaining. Yeah. But there are things that I think are probably different from person to person that bump them out of a mm -hmm. story as being unrealistic. Of and course. Yeah. You gave an example of porcupines chasing people in some book that you were reading, and you're like, that's just absurd. Um, how could a porcupine uh, chase a person? That would never yeah. happen. But I think of that also in terms of the fact that you're writing a book with a flying lethal bear. Yes, of course. So I would love for you to talk a little bit about, a little bit more about the function of Mord, yeah. the giant bear. Yeah. You've mentioned a little bit yeah. about sort of that inexplicable force. Sure. And it, he does feel more like a god or a... Uh, mm -hmm. Uh, meteorological events or mm -hmm. um, something that's not exactly yeah. a character. Right. Um, and you're not really going for believability mm -hmm. in the same way maybe the porcupine chasing person mm -hmm. was. So how do you balance your clear desire for the fantastic mm -hmm. and pushing that very far 
right. with also your annoyance juxtaposed against right. your annoyance around things that seem unrealistic. Well, I'm, I, I first of all don't not include myself in the same critique. For example, there was just no way to include corporations in the Southern Reach, and yet in any kind of realistic situation there, corporations would have a big role in some way in what happens in Area X. Um, but it just wasn't possible to add that layer, um, which is one reason why corporations kind of figure in this scenario, even if it's in a ruined company situation. Uh, and, and that's kind of where the plausibility of Mord comes from, because he is a company creation. The company has powers that are probably beyond the technology of today, um, and there is some explanation given ultimately for how Mord can fly. At the same time, I do believe that, you know, I could never have a flying bear or anything of that kind of inexplicability in the Southern Reach because it's the tactile nature that the realism of the moment in that book is different. Um, here, it's possible in part because of, of, of the fact that I am coming from a more fantastical point of view. Um, but, you know, Mord still has to con conform to some norms of bear behavior. He, he still has a rationality to him, even if the rationality is very nihilistic. Um, and he does have moments of reflection in a way. I mean, there, I was very careful in the scenes, even a scene where he skids to a stop in midair to avoid a missile strike, <laughs> um, that, that there was, um, there was kind of an additional amount of characterization behind him, um, that helps you understand him. And therefore the pressure isn't so much on why does he fly, uh, as a, all these other pressure points, because he's a little more complex than that. I'm going to read a quote that you <laughs> that you said at one point. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I'm not interested in increasing the distance between us and the world we live in. I'm interested in showing how there is no real gap and that if we don't realize that soon, other narratives are going to overtake us and replace whatever stories we're telling with their own stories. Mm -hmm. And when you say um, that if we don't realize that we are connected to the rest of the world soon, there will be other narratives that mm -hmm. will surplant mm -hmm. our narratives. It seems to place the problem, both the problem of a lack of seeing in a mm -hmm. certain way or a certain blindness to um, the way we tell our stories, mm -hmm. to storytelling mm -hmm. itself, and then by extension to um, addressing climate change. Mm -hmm. uh, can you talk a little bit more about seeing storytelling mm -hmm. and not having our narrative surplanted on planet Earth? <laughs> well, I mean, there's a couple of ways that our narrative could be supplanted. It simply could be that we go extinct and there are other species that are more successful. They don't have to be intelligent species as we define intelligence. The other is just in terms of geologic time. It doesn't really care what we do. <laughs> We're just going to become part of the sedimentary layer anyway. In, in a weird way, that's both um, depressing and comforting in a sense. The world still goes on no matter what we do. Um, but climate change is, as I think Timothy Mortonus has, has defined it, a hyperobject, which is to say it's something that exists in so many different modes and, and is everywhere and nowhere at the same time that it's very hard for the human mind to grasp. It's almost like it's a shame that we didn't encounter this problem, you know, like a million years in the future where we will have evolved uh, past our origins to the point where we could grasp these abstract things and understand, oh, this cancer rate here is completely related to this poisoning of the environment and not just see that as an abstract but feel it in our bodies in a way that makes us want to take action so often it's that we the correlation the cause and effect is there we just can't see it or we're cut off from seeing it um, and i think one thing that fiction can do in kind of the laboratory of of thought experiments is show us that make that overt in some ways i think it's more 
more overt in Annihilation maybe than in, in these in this book, but but still show us that. And and in fact, you know, going back to animals, I've actually written a novella set in the same world same world as Born from the point of view of the strange bird, which is just a bit player in Born. Oh, wow. Um, but you get to see how the strange bird came to the city, what happened after. Um, and it's an experiment in 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 doing a non-experimental, but still experimental because it's from the point of view of a bird, um, viewpoint character that's not human. And, and hopefully it's successful. But, you know, that 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 also makes us see a problem in a different way. Right. Well, I, I read a little bit about hyper objects yeah. in preparation yeah. for our conversation today, <laughs> though I don't know that I entirely feel like in yeah. the little that I read that I understand yeah. them. But one of the things that was mentioned was that a more religious orientation towards the hyper object seemed mm-hmm. appropriate. And I was wondering if that mm-hmm. was around, and I don't even know if I'm saying that mm-hmm. properly, but I wondered, I thought about religion and storytelling, mm-hmm. like the ways in which yeah. uh, it would tell us not to kill people or right. to steal from people. Like yeah. it creates a certain ethos, also potentially mm-hmm. bad or good around the right. land right. Um, as well and other creatures. Is the real solution to like climate change as a um, hyper object one of coming up with community stories that are s- stories that reinforce certain behaviors? Um, that certainly certainly is an important counter narrative to traditional what i would call dysfunctional storytelling about the environment and sometimes it's stuff that was useful to us in the past and it's just residual um i also think that you know as all politics are local you know we really need to have a connection to the space around us to really be have empathy for it i mean it shouldn't be that way but it's true and so that's why i think it's so important uh, also in urban settings that that people get a chance to tend community gardens, to come together over something that is more wild than their surroundings. Um, and it's just good for quality of life in general. But I do think that that is one solution. We have two things. We have these overarching problems that need to be dealt with at the government level and the world level. And then we have, even if, you know, let's say there was no global warming, we would still have all these problems with pollution, plastic, and everything else that we'd have to solve that by themselves might be insurmountable. And so those things you solve locally in, in many ways by community activism, uh, by having a connection to the land, no matter what that land is, um, being proud of where you're from, um, and, and not, con- not disconnecting yourself from nature, no matter what form that nature takes. Hmm. You'd mentioned or cited uh, Miyazaki's Princess Mononoke as one mm-hmm. of the influences for yeah. Born, and described it as having a great form of ecological uh, mm-hmm. seeing, mm-hmm. of seeing yeah. ecologically. Um, and I love that movie, mm-hmm. by the way. It's oh, one it's, of my favorite It's so movies. complex in so many ways. It's great. Yeah. But beautiful, and, too. And I was wondering about the role of technology, because you've also mentioned, wouldn't it be great if we had, like, virtual reality goggles where we could see, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the pheromone trails of mm-hmm. creatures communicating mm-hmm. yeah. in, in, vis- in ways that are currently invisible to us, or, mm-hmm. like, the ways in which uh, fungal populations are yeah, in yeah. communication just as we walk through the street and right. or the aerosols uh, yeah. medicines coming out of trees yeah. yeah um do you see any any um anything that piques your interest in in ways that could be almost pedagogical in in reorienting ourselves in relationship yeah, to the world absolutely i mean what i suggested as that project is of course um you know immensely expensive and and everything else and requires a lot of tech behind it um, but one frustration i have is simply that we think of what i call hard tech like our cell phones and whatnot as being incredibly complex but if you could actually see the complexity of the world around you it would, those things would look very very simplistic 
but beyond that, I am working on a pedagogical unit, uh, which is based on truly seeing a very finite area from all possible perspectives. And it probably would be something that would be in part of a science class where they would create microfictions around it, try to find ways to pull narrative out of things like geologic time. Um, but each person in the class would have the would bring to the class something about that very specific place, the history, the sociology, the biology, um, the geology, et cetera. So you had a complete composite, like sedimentary layers of what that place meant culturally and everything else. Um, and it would be a holistic way of, of, of kind of uh, a true seeing as much as possible. And you would also tr be trying to sh show what the animals in that area, how they would perceive the land, what they get out of it, um, and not try to divorce all these things from one another. Um, and then just as an experiment, see how that affects the writings that come out of it, see how that affects the, the point of view of, say, someone who's coming at it from one branch of a science as opposed to another, or someone who's coming from the liberal arts. Is this the nonfiction climate change storytelling project that you have? Or That's is that actually, different? it actually would probably be a chapter in it, like the results from it. Um, yeah. I am about 1,500, 15,000 words into a climate change book, and parts of that I've done as a presentation, parts of those have appeared as essays online. And uh, I'm hopeful that that'll be published next year. Hmm. So. Well, you have this interesting conversation with Cory Doctorow, another mm -hmm. writer who mm -hmm. I admire um, and thinker that I admire. But it seemed to illuminate and foreground some possible fault lines within science fiction yes. fantasy yes. that I found really interesting to, to yeah. witness yeah. on the page. To paraphrase Doctorow, um, he said that what makes us as humans different than animals and plants is that we care if they die, mm -hmm. uh, but they'd be fine if, if we right. did. Right. So we should focus on getting humans to survive and then figure out how the survival can make other life, our survival can make other life viable because we care about it. And you had some trouble with this, and I also had some yeah. questions and tro uh, troubling questions about it. But I was I was curious what your thoughts were on that, and then I want to piggyback on them to yeah. ask you a larger question about the field. Well, well, obviously, I have a lot of respect for Corey when it comes to tech issues, but it is a good example of what happens when you step out of your comfort zone. Um, and to me, it was a very troubling statement. I mean, life on Earth is already viable. Um, the statement itself shows no no real knowledge of animal behavior studies from the last 20 years, like I've been saying. Um, and in general, you know, I, I really kind of uh, push back against this idea that everything exists uh, for at our beck and call or that somehow reality only exists through the human mind. I think that's a very dangerous concept because that begins to get into all kinds of other kind of problematic territory. So I don't know. You'd have to ask Corey more what he thinks about that. But I, I totally reject reject that particular idea. And I think it's 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 a toxic one. I also wonder about the idea that we care, because if you were to look dispassionately <laughs> at what we're doing, I mean, of course, right. individuals right. care, but right. as a species, if we were, if another species was visiting right. and saying, we care about the coral and we care about the bees. Yeah, it would be very tough to tell that. Right? Yeah. And yeah. you would see us caring more only in so far as it's affecting yeah. like human viability, yeah. not right. in and of themselves. And again, my argument is that this is all connected and, and that if, if we take care of these things ethically, if we behave active, ethically in balance, um, we take care of ourselves as well. So, so again, there's this difficulty where sometimes you'll mention these issues and you sound like some kind of as quote unquote tree hugger um, or that you're valuing animals over human beings. And that's not it at all. The fact is that, that there has been this delinking that should not have been delinked. 
Um, and it even applies to things like best business practices. Republicans are always mentioning best business practices, but in actual fact, most of the businesses they're talking about are completely run badly. Um, when you look at the hidden costs of the environment and people, they're complete, a complete wash. They're a complete disaster. So people going around talking about best business practice as opposed to it being something separate from environmental causes are just talking BS as far as I'm concerned. Well, to take this 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 fault line between you and Corey on this issue further, I wondered if it was empl- emblematic of something larger in the science fiction mm-hmm. fantasy community. When I imagine it, and maybe it's, I don't know if it's the same issue or not, I think of, um, say, Neil Stevenson on one side, mm-hmm. foregrounding human ingenuity and mm-hmm. the technological mm-hmm. fix. So, um, and then the other, that the answers are going to be human answers. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, and sort of this, this marvel at what a, what humans can do. And then on the other side, I would put Ursula Le Guin, who argues f- that um, the answers are probably largely non-technological and already at our uh, disposal, restraint, tolerance, fellowship with things that are utterly other, um, a curiosity about mm-hmm. the other, not necessarily to dismantle it, to mm-hmm. understand it, but to, mm-hmm. to be with it. Um, does that sound like something that you witness yourself? And do you feel like there's problematic aspects around the techno-fix part of the mm-hmm. science fiction community when it comes to problem-solving this? Well, I don't want to make generalizations about the science fiction community, and I always have had a kind of a one foot in that community and one foot in literary mainstream, so I'm, I'm not as familiar with what's going on necessarily. But I would say in terms of like Silicon Valley and, and some of the entrepreneurs there, it's, it's amazing to me how just because you were good in one area of creating some gadget, you're somehow an expert on transhumanism and posthumanism <laughs> and right. everything like that. The other issue, I think, is that there's a lot of unexamined foundations to this stuff, like even wanting to colonize other planets is kind of an extension of manifest destiny. If it doesn't come with the idea that, oh, there might be already something living there, something intelligent we won't be able to tell is intelligent, you know, are we going to export all the stuff we have problematic here, there? You know, so there's all this, like, reaching for the stars, I think, that is part of science fiction that is needs and is being examined like i think nora jemison and some other writers are really examining this stuff and 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 pointing out what's problematic about it and you can sound like a killjoy to some degree but i don't care because you know it it, it if, if we're still working on outdated and problematic impulses what what's the worth of anything um so, so that's where i would be coming from in terms of all this yeah well i want to i want to connect you to the last guest we had on the show mm-hmm. because um, Talia Field, whose book Experimental Animals is dealing with a lot of um, issues around human-animal relations, mm-hmm. too. It's not in any way um, fantastical, though you might... Some of the things that are in it seem almost like they yeah. could be. And but, I have that book. I haven't read it yet, but yeah, I have it. Yeah. Uh, I, I think you'd really find it fascinating, yeah. actually. Um, so she believes that we're at a crisis in storytelling as, mm-hmm. as, a hu- as human beings. She isn't speaking directly in regards to climate change, but if we link our ability or our inability to see the connections between us and plants and animals, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to see our interdependence, um, to our ability to halt global warming, mm-hmm. I think that her comments probably cross over. And mm-hmm. it definitely seem like they're comments about consciousness in mm-hmm. other creatures, mm-hmm. which you're dealing with in Born. Yeah. So I'm going to read you this, and, and then I, I want to um, hear your thoughts about it. Mm-hmm. So Talia Field says, A human-centric poetics is where the scale is human, The time is human, weeks, Mm. days, months, years. The landscape is human. The psychology is human. The crises are human. 
It's become equivalent to the cinematic in that what we consider human is eminently filmable mm. or able to be conceived in terms of edited visual screens. Cinematic prose contains consistent scale in space and time, and the human figure, whether in close-up or establishing shot, predominates. This aesthetic holds because ultimately we don't spend a lot of time in the awareness of our world without ourselves as tragic heroes of it. Larger time frames or scales rarely occur to us. Mm. Participation in the chorus of other creatures seems impossible, and it's scarcely imaginable to write ourselves out of the picture altogether. Um, That's a brilliant quote. As far as I'm concerned, yeah. Uh, uh, but I, I was—you had mentioned a little bit that reminded me of mm-hmm. this when you were talking about this chapter about mm-hmm. writing in mm-hmm. in terms of uh, geologic mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about because it seems to suggest this quote and what you're doing seems mm-hmm. to suggest we need to build new tools that aren't all referencing what we've done in the past. Well, and so yeah. what are what are some of the things that you're seeing or excited about or playing with that right. might reference this um, decentering of the human, yeah. um, e- both in terms of proportion, but also in terms of time? It is an, an issue because you still generally have to have some kind of human character in a book in order to reach a larger audience. Like you can get as experimental as you want, as cut up as you want, and then you might wind up with like five readers. And, you know, I'm, I'm blessed to be in a situation where I can write novels, I can write short stories, I can do the experiments maybe in the short story or novella category that are the most radical experiments, also because radical experiments tend to work better at shorter lengths. Um, but it is an issue. And so you, you, you kind of go to some kind of guerrilla experimentation with regard to this. There's experimentations with this in the Annihilation series, um, maybe a little less so in Born, which is a more conventional narrative, in part because there's such strange monsters in it that you have this, you don't want it to fade all the way into dreamlike surrealism. You have to have it grounded in something, at least that. Um, but uh, Lydia Yuknovich's Book of Joan, I think, um, it does foreground the human in some ways, but in some ways it does not. And the ways that it, it kind of uh, deals with kind of fragmented narratives uh, suggests uh, the geologic time thing. Uh, you know, but also you can do it at the paragraph level. In Authority, there's a scene where the character is sitting in a, in a coffee shop and he's thinking about the foundations underneath the, the place that he's looking at and the geologic time of it. And in Nabokov, in Ben Sinister, there's an amazing sentence where the character is sitting somewhere and suddenly has a revelation as if a pit is opening up beneath him of the paleontological time that exists there. Um, And so it's all around us at at all times. It's just a matter of of opening up the narrative to include it and to get get that sense of awe and that sense of the world around you. Joy Williams uh, Mm -hmm. does a great job with animals in her narratives. Like they're, They're always in the backdrop, but they're never doing nothing. They're like the actor whose lines are over but he's still in the scene and he's still acting rather than just standing there um, and so all those little things are really useful in Born, I guess the thing that I tried to do is the little foxes in the background have their own story and if you really pay attention to those scenes the little foxes have their own narrative that Rachel doesn't even notice Wow. and so that's why I wrote Strange Bird this other thing is to try to get more directly at that to try to do something more experimental and then I have another story coming out called 
this world is full of monsters, where I get to really play around with that because it's like 100 years after an alien invasion of Earth and the ecosystem's completely changed and this guy wakes up who was basically put in suspended animation by the aliens and he has to traverse this world. And for, at one point, for example, he exists on this tortoise shell that's, that's actually a living organism but just looks like a tortoise shell that he's going down river on and he suddenly realizes that it has a body that's all along the riverbanks, that there are hundreds of disembodied eyes swinging from vines along the riverside and those are the eyes of this creature. And um, so trying to really, really stretch um, is something I'm trying to do. And then trying to find the narratives out there that, that kind of match that. I would say that it's more nonfiction that I'm seeing this kind of experimentation in, and then very small things in like even mainstream novels, mm. because we're living in the future right now, right? Climate change is caught up to us. So it's not just a science fictional imperative. You're seeing a lot of mainstream literary books that seep in in interesting ways. Well, you've you've said before that you feel like weird fiction is is best equipped to uh, deal with hyper objects mm-hmm. like climate change. Yeah. And we did mention at the beginning that you're a major um, formative uh, figure in the new weird Which movement. Kind of funny. But I, I I don't know that a lot of our listeners, uh, since the show, yeah. you know, definitely has science right. fiction and fantasy guests, but also has uh, a predominant amount of poets and memoirists right. and other writers know what weird fiction is so could you could you tell us a little bit about what weird fiction is and why you think it has more um appropriate tools potentially to deal with this well well, i i i first of all um actually think that any kind of fiction can address this issue Uh, weird fiction works very well for me and, and the reason i emphasize it is simply because it's often thought of as a regressive form or a traditional form um, but really what I find, and you know, I, I approach the annihilation as like science fiction from the point of view of the uncanny because I feel like aliens and things like that sometimes would feel like uncanny phenomenon to us, right? So it kind of makes sense to use those tropes. But in terms of climate change, I think when you have this cause and effect that's cut off, when you have something that appears everywhere and nowhere, it's almost like a haunting. Uh, you were haunted by climate change. And so thinking about that and thinking about how you put that into narrative in terms of weird fiction, which is is basically an encounter with the inexplicable. Like vampires and werewolves are not weird because we know what they are. They come with all the symbology, symbolism connected to them. They're not a surprise in that way when we encounter them in a narrative. Mm-hmm. The weird is truly about encountering a monster or something that you don't understand, that you've never seen before. And also that it's not necessarily horrific, that it may be beautiful and ecstatic and amazing to be out there in that unknown um, and not necessarily be terrifying. And that's a huge difference between the weird and horror as well. That's fascinating. Yeah. Um, the issue that has come up the most, it seems, in a lot of your interviews mm-hmm. around this book is whether this book is hopeful or mm. not, <laughs> which um, <laughs> it seems like a tricky question, um, given that by scientific consensus, our situation is mm-hmm. is dire. Right. Um, that we aren't acting fast enough to avert uh, catastrophic climate mm-hmm. shifts. Um, that even if we did the Paris Accords, which we're not able right. to do, right. we're at the sort of the mild end right. of catastrophe. We're right. not out of catastrophe. Um, and so it seems like on one hand, writing a book that was hopeful uh, would be problematic in that light. But to provide none would also seem to be equally problematic. Right. So uh, tell us a little bit about, uh, it seems like a strange question, but no, I'm also... No, it's not a strange question at all. You don't think it's a strange no, question? No, I don't. And it's actually really relevant in a lot of different ways. Uh, first of all, uh, I do think the book is realistic in this sense in that it's 
it's it's postulating a situation in which civilization has basically collapsed. And it's hopeful in the sense that there are still people around because, you know, there are forecasts that say that extreme weather will be to the point by like 2050 or 2070 where we will not be able to sustain any agriculture. And so, for example, when you have novels where there are still millions and millions of people living in the United States in, say, 2070, and they all seem to be eating okay, uh, and there's no explanation for any mitigation of that forecast, that's very unrealistic, and that kind of hope is, is well, frankly, BS. Um, but on the other hand, there's this weird question with regard to the literary and hope and post-apocalyptic fiction where it becomes commodified. Hope becomes the code word for this is much more entertaining than the road. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Read my book. And so I, 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 hate, I bring this up a lot when I'm asked about hope because even though I do think this is a hopeful book, I am also very wary of commodifying things that should not be. It's one thing if we're talking about the merits of puppies. But if you're talking about climate change, if you're talking about things that are affecting people right now, I think it's very problematic not to just say, look, I want to talk to you about my book. You know, I have to. I think it may be useful in some context, but at the same time, I'm not going to, try to sell you I'm not I'm not trying to sell you something in that way in that commercial sense so in that context you know I don't like books that are monotone uh, even like authority has a lot of I think dark humor in it and so you know people are surprised that there's a lightness in here there's a lightness because of the human relationships but the fact of the matter is you don't just stop living when you're in extreme situations and there are moments of light even when there is a lot of darkness and so I wanted to capture that as well. I mean, this is about characters who are trying to connect. And I think Rachel's really hero heroic because she succeeds in that, even as everything is falling down around her. And if there is something to preserve about humanity, it, it is that, hmm. you know. Well, it was a real pleasure having you on Between the Covers today, Jeff. Yeah, well, thank you. And thank you for such great questions. We've been talking today to Jeff Vandermeer, the author of Born. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. If you enjoyed today's program, consider supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash between the covers. And also while you're there, check out the growing archive of bonus material available. Thanks for listening.